Just a quick word of warning, the topic of today's podcast is grief. All of the stories today do involve death, so it might be triggering for some people. I first met my friend Hannah at a show, although I don't remember who the band was. I used to work at a music venue where I would see shows every weekend, and after a while all the bands started to blur together. I also lived in this venue for a time, so sometimes it was annoying because it was like bands were playing in my living room. But one good thing is that there were always interesting people coming through. I noticed Hannah right away because of her sign. Hannah used a wheelchair, and she had a handwritten sign on a scrap of fabric that she hung off of the back of it that said, I'm not crippled, you're crippled. This was a small venue, and it was the kind of place where sometimes people went there and felt like they were home, and they would start coming back every week, and eventually they would be part of the family. That's how I got there, and Hannah ended up being one of those regulars too. We liked a lot of the same stuff. We loved the same music. We loved the same movies. She was also really into video games and playing poker. I would go to her house often and we'd play video games. We especially liked playing street ball on her PS2. I remember she talked about how it was amazing because it let her feel like she was playing basketball, something that she was never able to do. And I kind of absentmindedly said, yeah, me too. And she was like, you know, your legs work. You could go out and play basketball. You're just lazy. Hannah didn't mince words. That was part of what I liked about her. It was always interesting to go out with her in public because no matter where we went, we would get stares, we would get awkward conversations, and Hannah did not shy from confrontation. She would ask people point blank what the fuck they were looking at. People would talk down to her often, and if she thought they were being condescending, she would cuss them out. We would go get coffee a lot together, and people would always feel the need to come up to her and let them know, oh, I also know somebody in a wheelchair or somebody else that has a disability. She would just be like, why are you talking to me like I give a shit about that? Her wheelchair had a tray on it. People would lean on it. One time a guy just put his full cup of coffee on it, and Hannah, who didn't have the best control of her arms, told me to just knock it off for her. So I did. I pushed it on the ground and spilled his coffee. When he got mad, Hannah said, I'm not a fucking table. Hannah cussed a lot. That's another thing I liked about her. She also could be harsh when sharing her musical opinions. I remember in 2005 when that James Blunt song, You're Beautiful, was really big. Hannah would always tell me how much she hated that song. Me and Hannah hung out so often that sometimes people thought that maybe we were romantically involved. But I was not exactly Hannah's type. Hannah was a lesbian, although had never really been in a relationship. She had this best friend from high school that she would talk about often. I'll change her name for this story and just say her name was Lydia. But Hannah had had this huge crush on Lydia and had kind of felt like Lydia led her on. But then later, Lydia got a boyfriend and moved away and left Hannah devastated. Hannah always felt like Lydia put her boyfriends and then her eventual husband over her friendship with Hannah. But we didn't talk about that a ton. It was a sore subject. Mostly, we just had a blast. We would go to card houses in LA and play poker together. We'd go to shows. We'd go to movies. God help you if you sat in the handicap section and you weren't actually handicapped when Hannah was around. And then in 2006, Hannah was going on a family trip back to her native Vietnam. Her parents were from a small town there, and she wasn't really looking forward to it. She said there wasn't a lot to do there. She was supposed to be gone for a couple weeks, and when she got back, we were going to go see a movie together. Then out of the blue, I got a call. Not from Hannah, but from Hannah's old friend Lydia, somebody who I'd never actually talked to before. I'd only heard the stories about her. But she'd gotten my name and phone number from Hannah's address book. While Hannah was in Vietnam, she had gotten sick. They didn't have the proper hospital in the town that she was in to care for her, so she was put in a helicopter to be taken to Ho Chi Minh City, and she died in the helicopter. I'd met her parents plenty of times. I'd been to her house a lot, I'd driven her van before, but we weren't exactly close. And I don't think they had my phone number, so they contacted Lydia, and they put her in charge of making all the arrangements with Hannah's friends for her funeral. Me and Hannah's other friends from the music venue went to the funeral, 
but I couldn't help feeling bitter. Lydia was there introducing herself to everybody as Hannah's best friend. But I felt like I was Hannah's best friend. And according to Hannah, Lydia hadn't even talked to her for years. Lydia also picked the music that was played during the viewing of Hannah's body. And one of the songs that came on was James Blunt's Beautiful. No offense to James Blunt, but I was so mad that I left. I still think about Hannah a lot because she was a good friend and I miss her. But also because it reminds me that I have to make sure nobody plays any bad music at my funeral. The passing away of a friend or a family member, it can shape our lives in a number of different ways. And for the musicians that we're talking about today, tragedies in their life defined their careers. The first story is about the singer of an indie rock band, whose mom got sick and she had to go back to her hometown to take care of her. And the music that she made in the aftermath of her mother's death changed the whole course of her career. The second story is about the singer of a heavy metal band, who chose the name of his band in honor of his dead brother, and then he himself died too young. And the last story is about one of the most important singers of all time, who likely wouldn't have become that if it hadn't been for the deaths of two very important people in her life. On today's podcast, three stories of musicians dealing with loss through music. I'm Patrick Hicks, and this is Good Measure. What keeps us together across town, across space? Michelle Zahner was born March 29, 1989, in Seoul, South Korea. Her father was a car salesman, although not exactly what we think of when we think of car salesmen in America. He sold cars to the U.S. and Canadian military in Seoul. While he was there, he stayed at this hotel called the Nija Hotel, and there was a worker there who he pursued, and they started dating, they fell in love, and then after only three months, they got married. After Michelle was born, they moved back to America and settled in Eugene, Oregon. Her dad's name was Joel, and her mom's name was Chong Mi. As a child, Michelle hated being half Korean. She didn't like being different. She didn't like all the questions from her peers about where she was really from. She didn't like the fact that everybody thought she was Chinese or Japanese and acted like they'd never heard of Korea. She said she had no Asian friends and didn't really feel any connection to the Korean culture, except through Korean food. She loved Korean food. Growing up, her mom actually made two separate meals every night. She would have to make American food for their father and then Korean food for herself. And Michelle would usually eat a little from both. But as she got older, she found herself craving Korean food the most. When they would go on family vacations and they couldn't find a Korean restaurant, they would go back to the hotel and eat microwave rice and seaweed instead of going out. In the summer, Michelle would often go back to Korea with her mom, Chong Mi. Her and her mother were close. But when she was 15, she asked for something that started to drive a wedge between them. A guitar. Michelle had played piano when she was five years old, but that was acceptable. Getting a guitar because she was starting to get really into rock music wasn't so much. Like most Asian Americans, I was uh, forced to play the piano at five years old and I hated it. And begged my mom to get a guitar when I was 16 and, and pretty much started writing songs. Michelle had been inspired by the band The Yaya Yaz. The band singer, Karen Oh, like Michelle, was half Korean. Her parents finally gave in and got her a $100 Yamaha guitar from Costco. But Michelle said getting a guitar, it wasn't really about music, it was more about getting a tool to express herself. She took lessons from a guy named Jason Moss at a place in Oregon called, appropriately, The Lesson Factory. But she said as soon as she learned her first three chords, she started writing songs. 
The first song she ever wrote was a song about friendship. She wrote it at 16, and it was called BFF. La 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 Taking pictures in the park Tea parties are fun a lot Slow dancing in the bedroom Roller skating, wearing costumes Holding hands in art museums BFF, BFF, BFF Whoa, whoa, Michelle started playing open mics and even started playing at venues around Eugene. Michelle said that her early material sounded a lot like Kimya Dawson from the Moldy Peaches. She called herself Little Girl Big Spoon. But these musical ambitions were straining her relationship with her mom. Her mom did not want her to become a musician. Because of the issues with her mom, Michelle started suffering from depression. After she graduated high school, she went to college at Bryn Mawr College in Pennsylvania and studied creative writing. She was in a few different bands in college, Post Post and The Birthday Girls. But after she graduated in 2011, she started her most serious band. It was an emo, indie rock type band called Little Big League. To support herself, she waited tables. She worked the coat check room at a music venue in Philadelphia called Union Transfer. For years, she struggled to try to get a music career off the ground. Little Big League toured, and they were able to release some albums on some smaller labels. And then in 2014, Michelle got the news that her mother was sick. She had gone to the doctor complaining of a stomach ache, and then found out that she had a rare stage 4 cancer. Michelle quit Little Big League and moved back to Eugene to take care of her mom. Michelle said that during this time, watching her mom go through chemotherapy and struggling, Michelle's comfort was Korean food. Suddenly I wasn't thinking about my mom losing her hair or my mom losing weight. I was thinking about us in Korea eating papingsu, shaved ice with sweet red beans, and it was like a parting of a cloud, like a mental cloud. On October 18th, 2014, just a few months after being diagnosed, Chongmi passed away. Michelle continued to look to the Korean part of her identity for comfort. Her mom had never actually taught her to cook Korean food, so Michelle started learning on her own, watching videos on YouTube to learn. And she also started pouring herself into a new musical project. She'd come up with the name for this new solo project a while ago. She'd gotten the name from this gif that she'd seen on the internet, and she thought it was good because it took something very American, the word breakfast, and combined it with something that she thought Americans would think sounded very foreign, Japanese. She thought people would be intrigued. What is Japanese breakfast? They wouldn't know. She also thought it would be ironic since growing up, people had always mistaken her for Japanese. She started writing and recording these songs that were helping her deal with her mother's death. But she wasn't necessarily thinking that this was going to be her career. She actually went and started working at an advertising firm. She thought after her mom's death that she should go do something that she thought her mom might have wanted her to do. But it didn't last long. She got let go after nine months. In April of 2016, her debut album as Japanese Breakfast was released. She called it Psychopomp. Michelle's intention for Psychopomp was for it to be a one-off thing. After that, she was going to quit music. She said she wasn't planning on touring for the album, she was going to move on. And then the album ended up becoming an unexpected critical success. It started getting way more attention than she thought it would. She got the opportunity to tour opening for the musician Mitski, who she really admired, so she felt like she couldn't turn it down. There's 
something like so magical about the way that things happened for me. You know, I, I've been playing music since I was 16 years old and right. I played house shows and, you know, no one cared about my band for a very long time. And after she died, I uh, was like, I'm going to, you know, r record one more record about this experience. And then, you know, I don't care what happens. I'll like press 500 copies and, you know, sell it out of like my basement over the course of like the next 10 years mm -hmm. and that of course was the record that kind of took off and really resonated with people and it was like oh this is just like not quite the time to hang up my hat and then after that it was just like every everything that happened just like felt like there was this like weird force that was kind of like looking out for me and it's it's both like it's very bittersweet because my mom never got to see me experience any kind of success and was like so worried about living the life of an artist but now it, it just kind of has to feel like she she knows somehow or is like responsible for it. In July of 2016 Michelle won an essay contest for Glamour magazine. She wrote this essay called Real Life, Love, Loss, and Kimchi. It was about dealing with her mother's death and learning how to cook Korean food. In July of 2017 she put out her second album which was again highly critically acclaimed and this time even entered the Billboard charts. Now her career was really starting to pick up steam. People loved her music, she was touring, she was getting a lot more fans, and she continued to put her creative writing skills to use. In 2018, she wrote another essay, this one published in The New Yorker, that was called Crying in H-Mart. H-Mart, if you don't know, is a chain of Korean grocery stores in America. I know we are all here for the same reason. We're all searching for a piece of home, or a piece of ourselves. We look for a taste of it in the food we order and the ingredients we buy. Every time I remember that my mother is dead, it feels like I'm colliding with a wall that won't give. There's no escape, just a hard surface that I keep ramming into over and over, a reminder of the immutable reality that I will never see her again. This half an inch tumor like destroyed my family and tore my life apart. And I think I just needed all of the space and word count and time to, to sort through that. This essay also dealt with the grief that she felt after her mother's passing, and this one got so much attention that she was asked to expand it into a full-length memoir. The book Crying in H-Mart came out in 2021. It debuted at number two and spent 60 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. Orion Pictures optioned it for a movie, and Michelle wrote the script herself. Japanese Breakfast's second album also dealt a lot with grief. But I think one of the reasons her music resonated so much with people is that the songs aren't necessarily sad. They're not depressing. They're happy and hopeful. Even though they're about dark topics, they're fun to listen to. And her most recent third album, called Jubilee, was her most uplifting yet. was another highly critically acclaimed album, and this one went to number 56 on the Billboard charts. In high school, Michelle's mom, Changmi, had never wanted her to be a musician. And now she's one of the most critically acclaimed musicians of her generation. Michelle's first album as Japanese Breakfast, Psychopomp, was named after a word that comes from Greek mythology. The Psychopomp was the guide that would escort people into the afterlife. They didn't pass any judgment, they just helped them with the transition. That's what Michelle said she felt like her role was when she was dealing with her mother dying. It's also a term that's sometimes used in psychology, a term that means the space between the conscious and unconscious. Michelle said that one of the things that helped her deal with her mother's death, besides learning to cook Korean food and making indie pop masterpieces, was that she would often dream about her mother. 
She said that it felt like her mother was visiting her in her dreams. Our second story is about death. All the stories are about death, but this story is about a band who's literally called Death. Death was a band from Florida who were one of the pioneering bands of the subgenre of heavy metal called death metal. Their music was aggressive, they had growling vocals, they sang about blood and guts, but the band was all about taking the scary, horrible things of life and making them something positive. Chuck Schuldner's mother Jane said that he had a Leave it to Beaver type childhood. Chuck was born in 1967 on Long Island, New York, but when he was just one years old, his parents moved to Florida. He lived in a place called Altamont Springs, which was a suburb of Orlando, and Chuck's mom said that he spent his childhood building tree forts and camping with his older brother Frank in the backyard with flashlights and lots of snacks. Even though Chuck's brother Frank was seven years older than him, the two were really close. And then, when Chuck was nine years old, Frank was 16, Frank was killed in a car accident. Chuck was devastated. His parents tried to think of what could help him cope with the loss, and they decided to buy him an acoustic guitar. At first, he didn't really take to it. He found his lessons boring. And then a couple years later, he got his first electric guitar. And his mom said when he first started playing the electric guitar, it was like a switch got flipped. And the switch never turned off. As a teenager, Chuck started getting really into heavy metal music. He liked stuff like Kiss and some of the bigger bands of the new wave of British heavy metal like Judas Priest and Iron Maiden. But what he really loved were the more extreme heavy metal bands. Bands like Venom and Merciful Fate, Hellhammer and Celtic Frost. When Chuck started making music himself, he said his one goal was to be brutal. He wanted to come up with the most brutal guitar riffs, he wanted to have the most brutal growling vocals. And when he started his first band at 16, a band called Mantis, this brutality really set them apart. Another thing that was really unique about Chuck is that he was very prolific at recording. Starting in 1983, when he started Mantis, the band recorded a ton of demos and live tapes. And eventually that demo tape making would pay off, but not necessarily with Mantis. Mantis kind of fell apart. Chuck moved to Toronto in 1986 and joined a band called Slaughter, but then he went back to Florida, settled in Tampa, and started a new band that he called Death. Death was meant to be a deliberate tribute to his brother Frank. He said he wanted to take this horrible negative feeling and turn it into something positive. I consider the name to definitely be just a name you know, when I chose it, like about eight years ago or whatever, I, I wanted a name to describe the music, an extreme name for extreme music. And it's just a name to me. I'm a very positive person towards life, towards friendship, towards love, towards, you know, all certain things that, that we're made up as, as being human. So definitely, um, it's a drastic name, and definitely I think people look at you a certain way, you know, and it's, it's something I guess I just have to tell people about, you know, so they realize that I'm not satanic because I'm in a band called Death and I'm not a, a violent person or anything, you know, I'm just a person who has a name of a band and is, I'm trying to just make everything fit together, you know, it wouldn't work having a band called uh, pink flowers, you know, it just definitely would contradict what the sound we're creating is. What Chuck didn't know and really wouldn't have any way of knowing is that there was already a band from the 70s called Death, and they actually chose their name for a very similar reason. 
Death was a punk band, or a proto-punk band since punk didn't really exist yet. They were from Detroit and were part of the whole MC5 Stooges type Detroit punk sound. But unlike the Stooges and the MC5, nobody would put out Death's record because they were called Death and they refused to change their name. But they were called Death in tribute to their father who had passed away. Death was a band of three brothers. They had another name before, but when their father passed away, one of the brothers insisted that they change the name to Death. Later, when it looked like they might get a record deal if they changed their name, two of the brothers were willing to compromise. But one brother, who was kind of the artistic visionary of the band, refused. He said, we get signed as death or nothing. Well, it turned out it was nothing. They never got signed. They did have some recordings, and they put out one 7-inch single themselves, but nobody ever really heard it. It wasn't until decades later, when this record became highly sought after punk record collectors, that the legend of this band called Death grew. In 2012, a documentary came out called A Band Called Death that tells the story of the Hackney Brothers and their punk band, but in the mid-1980s, it's highly likely that Chuck had never heard of them. So he named his band Death and started making demo recordings right away. Eventually, Death, the metal band, recorded this three-song demo called Mutilation, and this demo tape became extremely popular with heavy metal fans. Fans back then used to trade tapes of their favorite bands, and the Mutilation demo was highly sought after by tape traders. This demo got into the hands of Combat Records, which was a record label that specialized in punk and heavy metal. The band Megadeth was on the label, and they wanted to sign Death to a record deal. It came just in time, because Chuck had actually dropped out of high school to pursue his dream of being a professional musician, and his parents had given him one year. They said, if after one year you're not signed to a label, you have to go to college. Chuck signed with Combat Records just in time. Chuck recorded the album himself in Florida. He did all the vocals, the guitars, and the bass, and he had a drummer named Chris Reefert that did the drums. But when Combat Records heard the record, they weren't happy with it. They said, you have to go to a professional studio and re-record this. So Chuck and Chris went to a studio called The Music Grinder in LA and re-recorded the album. The album was released in 1987 and was called Scream Bloody Gore, and it's widely considered to be one of, if not the first, death metal album. I, as far as people giving credit to death as being the inventors of this form of music, I can't go that far and accept that type of uh, comment. I would have to say bands like Venom throughout 1980 were, the, I think Venom were really truly the first to, to do this really actually well motorhead also because they were very raw and aggressive but venom for this type of music i think venom would have to be one of the key bands definitely you know and there are other bands that inspired me such as exciter and uh, metallica when they first came out anvil merciful fate these bands really you know they weren't necessarily death metal but they inspired what is today some people will cite the band Possessed from the Bay Area as releasing the first death metal album, although some people will say that they were actually more of a thrash metal band. Some people will say it's the band Necrophagia from Ohio, but certainly death are one of the pioneers. They have the fast, aggressive blast beat drumming, they have the growled vocals, and they have horror-inspired, bloody, violent lyrics. Some of the songs on the first record are Zombie Ritual, Baptized in Blood, and Regurgitated Guts. For their 
their next album in 1988, Leprosy, Chuck brings in some new musicians. He actually brings back this guy named Rick Roz, who had played with him in Mantis, and a new drummer named Bill Andrews. This album and the rest of Death's albums will be recorded in Florida at Morris Sound Recording. Death are part of this scene in Tampa, Florida that has become all of a sudden a hotbed for extreme metal music. Death themselves were inspired by this band called Nasty Savage from 1982, and their other bands in the scene like Morbid Angel, Obituary, Deicide, even the arguably most famous death metal band of all time, Cannibal Corpse, were originally from New York, relocated to Tampa in 1990. Then for their 1990 album Spiritual Healing, Chuck changed musicians again. Now Chuck was starting to kind of get a reputation as a perfectionist. After this, he mostly would work with just session musicians and hired live musicians. In 1991, Death had their most successful album yet with the album Human, but they also had a change in musical direction. Chuck moved away from the death metal subgenre that he had helped create and started getting into more progressive metal. The songs started becoming more complex. These progressive metal or progressive death metal albums that he was putting out as Death were just as influential as his early work. Death will always remain a growing band and trying to conquer what people already think of heavy metal and death metal or hard rock in general. So I feel like uh, I won't put a limit on this and I want to keep continuing to grow as a musician and as a person in life and to try to put into the music what I learned, so to speak. Even though Death weren't necessarily a household name, they were one of the most important and influential metal bands in history. And then in 1999, Chuck Schuldner got diagnosed with brain cancer. Chuck had been able to make his dreams come true and make a living as a musician, but he wasn't rich, and he found that he couldn't afford the surgery that he needed for his cancer. But Chuck had been so important to so many people that tons of musicians started coming to his aid. The metal community donated money, local bands would do charity shows, and even megastars like Kid Rock, Korn, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, they auctioned off things to raise money for Chuck's medical bills. But ultimately, it wasn't enough. December 13th, 2001, at the age of 34, Chuck passed away. Even after his death, his mother Jane continued to correspond with fans. She said for years, people would still write to her and would tell her how much her son's music meant to them. Jane said that Chuck was always a great son. She said that they would go antiquing together, he would call her up to go get a cup of coffee, sometimes he would just stop by her house, ring the doorbell, and take her out to lunch. He never forgot her birthday or any other special occasion, and she said he would often thank her for what a great childhood he had. Death was popular not just in America, but across the world. They sold 2 million copies worldwide and are the best-selling death metal band of all time. third story takes us away from the death metal swamps of Tampa, Florida, and to New York City, in the neighborhood of Harlem in the 1930s. It's the middle of the Harlem Renaissance, a wave of innovation in African-American music and literature, art, and fashion, and it's November 21st, 1934. It's a Wednesday night, and at the Apollo Theater in Harlem, it's amateur night. 
The building that became the Apollo Theater actually opened originally as a burlesque theater in 1913. It was originally for whites only, but it was bought out in 1933, revamped and reopened in January of 1934, and it catered specifically to Harlem's African-American population. And on this particular amateur night, a 17-year-old girl is there to dance. Except there was another dance act there that night, a duo called the Edward Sisters, and the girl was so intimidated by them that at the last second she decided to sing. She sang a song called Judy by Hoagie Carmichael and a song called The Object of My Affection that had been recorded by this group called the Boswell Sisters. This girl was a big fan of their lead singer Connie Boswell, and she did her best to sing just like her idol Connie and ended up winning the amateur night. She won the first prize of $25. Part of the prize was actually supposed to be that she got to perform at the Apollo for a week, but she didn't actually get that part of the prize. Scholars speculate it might have been because of her appearance. She looked dirty and disheveled because she was essentially homeless. But that 17-year-old girl, Ella Fitzgerald, would go on to become one of the most important singers of all time. I started back in my hometown in Yonkers, and I was what they call the, you know, the greatest little dancer in Yonkers. We used to go down to the Apollo on amateur night, my girlfriends and I. I could do this dance, so everybody said, oh boy, you're great, you ought to go down and try to go in a contest. You know, they say, well, if you don't go, you're chicken. So we went, and uh, believe it or not, I was the first amateur that they called, and there were two sisters who were the dancing sisters in the world called the Edward Sisters, and they were starring at the Apollo. And I, when I saw those ladies dance, I said, no way I'm going out there and trying to dance, because they stopped the show. I was the first one was called. And when I got out there, somebody hollered up in the audience, what is she going to do? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the man said, you're out here. He says, well, do something. And my, my mother had a, a record of Miss Connie Boswell who I think was one of the greatest singers that ever lived. And I thank Miss Connie Boswell, because then I tried to sing like her, and I sang, If a voice can bring every hope of the spring, that's Judy. And everybody says, oh, that girl can sing. Ella was born in 1917 in Newport News, Virginia. Her mother, Temperance Henry, who they called Tempe, had never married her father, William Fitzgerald. They did live together, but after a couple years, they split up and Tempe relocated to New York. They settled in Yonkers in 1923. Tempe had a new partner, a Portuguese immigrant named Joseph da Silva. They had a baby in 1923, Ella's half-sister Frances, who she remained close to throughout her life. Growing up, Ella loved singing and dancing. In third grade, she would dance on the way to school, she would dance at lunch. She was a really big fan of this guy named Earl Snake Hips Tucker. He popularized a dance in Harlem called Snake Hips, and he was known as the human boa constrictor. But she also loved to sing. Her mom was active in the church, and she would sing there, and at home she loved to listen to jazz. She loved Louis Armstrong and Bing Crosby. But the singer she looked up to the most was Connie Boswell. Her mother brought home one of her records one day, and Ella said that was it for her. She got that record and tried as hard as she could to sound just like Connie. But then, as with a lot of these stories, something happens that completely changes Ella's life. When she's 15 years old in 1932, her mother, Tempe, dies in a car accident. 
Now, it's bad enough to lose your mother at that age, but then what happens next to Ella is even worse. At first, she continues to live with her stepfather, but he turns abusive to her. So she goes to live with her aunt in 1933 and moves to Harlem. Ella had always been a good student before, but now because of her mother's death and the abuse, she starts skipping school, getting bad grades, and falling in with a bad crowd. She gets involved with the local mafia, working with a numbers runner and working as a lookout at a brothel. If the cops came around, she would pound on the door to let them know that trouble was there. After doing this for a while, she gets caught and she gets sent to an orphanage. She goes to a place in the Bronx called the Colored Orphan Asylum. But unfortunately, this orphanage is too full, and Ella gets sent to a place called the New York Training School for Girls in Hudson, New York. In 1936, they do an investigation of this school and find out that there was horrific racism and abuse in this school. But Ella was there in 1934. Of the 460-something students there, the 88 girls that were black were segregated from the rest of the girls and put in the worst living conditions they had. They were beaten by the male staff members to the point of torture. This is not the worst thing that happened to her there, but maybe a good illustration of the stupidity of racism. They had a school choir and Ella wasn't allowed to join because it was whites only. She runs away from the girls' school and is singing on the streets of Harlem to survive, sleeping at the houses of friends when she can, until she wins that amateur night at the Apollo in 1934, and that sets her up for a career. This is the days in jazz of swing music and big bands, big jazz orchestras with ten or more members. She gets some work singing for one of these big bands called the Tiny Bradshaw Band at the Harlem Opera House. She starts making some friends in the music community, and then somebody she knows who knows the drummer Chick Webb hears that he's looking for a female singer for his band. Chick Webb is one of the most legendary jazz drummers of all time. He had a spinal condition that left him with a hunchback and he was abnormally short, but he played the drums with power that few other drummers did. When he met Ella, he wasn't sure about her at first. She was eight years younger than him, a foot taller than him, and she looked unkempt because she was basically homeless. But he thought that maybe she was a diamond in the rough. He agrees to give her a tryout performance, one night with his band for a show at Yale University. Needless to say, Ella Fitzgerald passes the audition. Audiences love her, and she starts performing regularly with Chick's band at the Savoy Ballroom in Harlem. Years later, after Ella became famous, they found the records that she was enrolled at that New York training school for girls. She had never really talked about it before, but in the records, when it said that she was finally released from the school, it showed that she was relinquished to the care of Chick Webb. He actually became her legal guardian when she joined his band. And then she also starts recording with the band. For a couple years, she recorded some songs that became minor hits. But then, in 1938, she had her breakout success. It's a song that seems surprising it became a hit. It was basically a reworking of an old nursery rhyme, although Ella did the arrangement herself. It was a song called A Tisket, A Tasket. A tisket, a tasket, a brown and yellow basket. I send a letter to my mommy on the way I dropped it. I dropped it, I dropped it. And it was such a big hit that Ella became a nationwide star. This is in the days before the Billboard charts, so it's hard to measure exactly, but they did measure the sales of sheet music since that's the way most people consumed music. And this was number one in the sheet music sales, number one in jukebox sales, and number one on this radio show called Your Hit Parade. A Tisket, A Tasket was one of the best-selling singles of the entire 1930s. And it's still heard to this day in movies and TV shows and covered by different artists. It seems like Ella is on top of the world. 
and then she suffers another tragedy from another parental figure in her life. On June 16, 1939, Chick Webb dies due to complications of his spinal disorder. He was only 30 years old, and his last words were, I'm sorry, I've gotta go. Ella is only 22 years old. Ella is only 22 years old, but the rest of Chick's band looks to her to be the new leader. She takes over as the band leader of Chick's band and renames it Ella and her famous orchestra. As the band leader of her own band, she records 150 songs between 1935 and 1942. But in the 1940s, the style of music that she's playing, this swing, big band style, is starting to go out of fashion. A new, more inventive, avant-garde style of jazz is becoming popular called bebop. Ella's band dissolves, but Ella is able to adapt. She works with the trumpeter Dizzy Gillespie and starts adapting her vocal style into doing scat singing. She wasn't the first person to do scat singing. Louis Armstrong had done it years before, but Ella makes it her own and becomes one of the most important scat singers of all time. She said she was trying to imitate the sounds of the horns that she heard guys like Dizzy Gillespie playing. In 1945, she releases this song called Flying Home. And her performance on this is one of the most influential jazz vocal performances ever. Her improvisation skills and inventiveness are unmatched. In 1947, she has another big song with a song called Oh Lady Be Good. This is a song originally written by George and Ira Gershwin, who famously remarked, we never knew how good our songs were until we heard Ella Fitzgerald sing them. But after years of doing this, Ella starts to feel boxed in by bebop. At this point, she's a star, but she's more of a cult jazz star. She hasn't crossed over as much into popular music. But then she meets this guy named Norman Granz, who's a producer and has also just started his own jazz label called Verve. Ella leaves her previous record label Decca and signs with Verve, and she's the first artist to release an album on the label. The album is produced by Norman Granz, and he wants her to be a crossover pop star. This is in 1956, and she releases a double album called Ella Fitzgerald Sings the Cole Porter Songbook. It's an album of her just singing Cole Porter songs, but it becomes a landmark album. It starts a trend of artists focusing on one songwriter's songs, and it showcases Ella's powerful gift of interpretation. She releases several more successful albums like these on Verve, where she covers the work of one specific songwriter. Doing these albums gives her the nickname The First Lady of Song. She also continued to perform and tour like crazy, getting a reputation as one of the top live jazz performers. Also on top of all this, she finds the time to be a civil rights activist. Ella by nature was very shy. Her band members said she didn't really stay and hang out and party with them after shows. She was just totally dedicated to music. But she wasn't shy about fighting against segregation. In 1955, she became one of the first black performers to perform at this Hollywood nightclub called the Mocabo Club. It was actually the actress Marilyn Monroe that pushed for her to play there. Earlier in the 1940s, she went on this tour that specifically booked shows at segregated venues. Then, as part of her contract, they would insist that they would not have segregated seating. Ella also would demand that she got equal pay to white male performers. And if the venues didn't comply, they would cancel the shows. Now we tend to think of Ella Fitzgerald as just a star of the 1930s and 40s, but she continued performing and recording into the 1990s. 
but unfortunately she had health problems in her later years that eventually caught up to her. She did her last recording in 1991 and her last public performance in 1993. She had suffered from complications with diabetes for years, and in 1993 she had both of her legs amputated. She lived a quiet life out of the public eye, and then finally passed away from a stroke in 1996. Ella's life was shaped in a lot of ways by the tragedy of losing her mother at a young age, and then again the tragedy of losing her mentor Chick Webb when she was only 22. But despite all the trauma that she endured, Ella Fitzgerald was able to triumph with her music. One more for good measure. Recently on my TikTok channel, I did a story about the band Green Day. Their lead singer, Billy Joe Armstrong, lost his father when he was 10 years old. By all accounts, he had a normal, great childhood. His parents didn't have a ton of money, but him and his five siblings were comfortable and happy. And then they lose their father, and Billy finds himself withdrawing into music. And I was thinking back on that story as I was talking about these stories, in these ways that tragedies can shape the course of our life. It seems like Billy Joe Armstrong might have been a musician no matter what. He'd actually already recorded a single. He put out this kind of novelty song that was written by a local music shop owner when he was five, called Look for Love. And his dad had been a drummer, so music was kind of in his blood. But after his dad passed away of cancer, Billy Joe became obsessed with music. He withdrew into it, and it became his whole world. So maybe he still would have been a musician, but would he have been as successful? Would he have played the same kind of music? Billy's dad passed away in September, and supposedly after it happened, Billy locked himself in his room and he told his mother, wake me up when September ends. Some words said in passing, the entire world crashing down again. You think that it's over, but then it goes on and on and on. Thank you, as always, to Brian Ashiba and the band Joyweather for doing the theme song to this podcast. Thank you to Chris for assisting with the sound. And thank you so much to my patrons on Patreon, Lance, Kyle, Pepe, Toggy, Ben, Beth, Jessica, Josh, Aaron, Ian, Michael, Stephen, Elizabeth, Erica, Nathan, Blair, Patricia, Stuart, Test2Waltz, Rebecca, Nia, and Stephanie. And thank you so much to everybody who has listened to this podcast. This is actually the last regular episode of this season, but I am going to have two special bonus episodes for you coming up, so please stay tuned next week. There will be a new podcast on a topic that I won't spoil for you, but it's something super cool that I'm really excited about. So stay tuned. I'll see you next week.